Welcome to X Chateau. X Chateau. The podcast that navigates the business of wine with unique perspectives and insights. With your host, Robert Vernick and Peter Young. Welcome to this episode of X Chateau. Today we have Don St. Pierre, Executive Chairman of Vinfolio, and Adam LaPierre, Master of Wine and President of Vinfolio. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thank you, Robert. Thank you so much. So I was wondering if you guys could give us a brief background on yourselves as well as your experience in the world of wine. Okay, I'll start. I started in wine in 1996. My father and I started a company in Beijing, China called ASC Fine Wines. We decided we wanted to import wine into China. I think there was one company that was doing that at that time. Most of the wine that was being sold in China was being sold through Hong Kong. My father's background was doing business in China. I had the opportunity to go to high school in Asia, in Jakarta, Indonesia, and Tokyo. During my university experience, where I came back to the U.S., I decided to start studying Chinese and spend time in Taiwan learning Chinese. Decided eventually I wanted to get back and do business. So my father and I came together and decided to start importing wine. We hadn't had any experience importing wine or in the wine business. He was in the automobile industry, and I was an entrepreneur doing other things. But we thought this would be interesting. So in 1996, we started, and just you know, long story short, we ended up building the biggest wine import distribution company in China. I sold that business in 2010 to Suntory, stayed on, involved in the company, both with ASC as executive chairman and with Suntory as a senior advisor until 2014 when I exited and moved to San Francisco in 2015, looking to re-engage in the wine business thinking that I wanted to be more on the consumer end as opposed to the import wholesale side. And through some friends of mine in the wine industry, got connected with Vinfolio. And after a relatively short period of time of due diligence, decided to invest, purchased about 33% of the business with a close friend of mine from China, a Danish fellow. And that's how we started. And Vinfolio had been around since, I believe, 2004, when an entrepreneur named Steve Bachman started the business. And had been through some various ups and downs, and I think we'll probably talk about that later. But in terms of my history in wine, that kind of brings you up to date to when I got involved in Vinfolio. And I've been in the business for about 20 years. Most of my experience was on the supplier side. I worked for a winery in the Finger Lakes. I worked for a national importer in a few different roles, importing wines from all around the world. I became a master of wine in 2013. And at that point, I transitioned to the buying side. I was doing some independent consulting, worked for a company called Lidl, which is one of the largest retailers in the world, setting up their program in the United States. And eventually, my wife and I decided to come back to California. And in that process, we met Don and learned more about the opportunity at Vinfolio and what he was doing. So joined Vinfolio in 2018, heading up the buying side and evolved my role in the company and became president of the company in February of 2020. So Don, back to your stories on Vinfolio. It's been around, as you said, since 2004. It's got a decent bit of history to it. And from our knowledge, just of the space has had several different pivots and transformations. Could you give us a history of Vinfolio and what it's done and how it's changed itself and what it does today? I can try. I wasn't involved in the beginning, but based on some of the conversations I've had with the people that were, Vinfolio was started by a software entrepreneur, as I mentioned, Steve Bachman. And Steve was a wine collector based in the Bay Area and saw a need to create a seller management tool 
to help himself and his friends that were wine collectors manage their wine collections. He also saw an opportunity to create a marketplace where himself and his friends could store wine and sell wine through the same platform. And so he began by building what's called VinCellar, which is a cloud-based seller management tool, and then built a marketplace and a warehouse storage business. At the same time, I believe Eric Levine was starting Seller Tracker, and I think it was really around the same period. So it's kind of interesting to think that these two software tech entrepreneurs were thinking of the same thing, which is, Jesus, how the hell do I manage my wine collection better? There's got to be something better than an Excel spreadsheet. Steve's idea was to create a more of an end-to-end solution for the consumer. And I think Eric's idea was more about creating a utility that was independent of any storage marketplace. So I think when Steve started the business, a lot of enthusiasm. He was able to raise quite a bit of money. Business really took off. But in 2009, with the global financial crisis, I think they got out in front of themselves too much and the company went bankrupt. Shortly afterwards, some of the clients that were using the software, using the storage business, storage facilities, decided it was worth saving. So they went in and really took it out of bankruptcy, recapitalized it, paid off all of the debt that was owed, and restarted the business. That's essentially the entity that I invested in, but many years later. And I think if you look at the journey of Vinfolio, it's really always been about creating an end-to-end solution for the wine collector, something that they can source wine, they can store wine, they can use a seller management tool to manage their passion for wine. And eventually they can sell wines that they're either not drinking or they have too much of. That's what attracted me about the platform, about the business, sort of combining this idea of a niche focus in fine wine, where I thought the three-tier system wasn't really working that well with technology and really see if we can't find a better way for people to manage their passion for fine wine, as well as eventually give producers outside the United States opportunities to connect more directly with the end consumers. If you think of the business model, it's relatively unique in the U.S. even today in that it is a multifaceted solution for fine wine collectors. If you look at the U.K. market, you will see other companies that do something similar, although they may not control all of the aspects of the process. So Barry Brothers and Rudd, for example, is a merchant. They offer reselling services. They utilize third-party storage for clients. So as a result, there is something similar out there as a reference point, but no one really in the U.S. is doing what we do. And in particular, that seller management software is still a real point of difference for us. So I'm curious in terms of your take on wine retail. One of the core elements is that you're able to create a marketplace where individual collectors can buy and sell wines between them. Can you briefly explain how this process works? Definitely. It is a pretty unique offering in the context of fine wine in the US. In essence, it's a fixed price auction model. So as opposed to a live auction where you've got various bidders bidding up the price, what we do is use proprietary tools that we've developed to understand the correct market price, assess the correct market price for an individual bottle. And we recommend those prices as selling prices to collectors that wish to sell on our platform. They have two ways in which they can put wines for sale on our platform. Storage clients actually have the ability to use VinCellar to identify products, bottles that they wish to sell. They can use our pricing tools as a guidance, but ultimately they set the sell price for these wines. And with a click of a button, those wines flow through to our available to sell inventory and ultimately onto our website. 
We have another option, which is a full service option for external clients or clients that really don't want to go through the process of picking their prices, where our team uses the tools that we have available, makes recommendations en masse. For external clients, we arrange shipping of the wines into our facility. They undergo an inspection. Ultimately, if they pass inspection, they're received into our available to sell inventory and we go to market with those. So I am curious in terms of, obviously, they buy direct from you and you're the original source. If they're outside of that, though, if they're actually just storing their wines with you, how do you address authenticity and provenance? Because as you mentioned, as an auction, they would have a whole group of people that handle that. Is that something that you guys do at Vinfolio as well? It is, yeah. We have a seller acquisitions team that will engage with external sellers to understand. We basically go through the entire list of proposed wines and we investigate how those wines were acquired, where they've been stored. In many cases, when we're talking about large collections, we actually will go into the sellers and do an on-site inspection at the seller's location. And additionally, when the wines are received in our warehouse, they go through a detailed inspection process by the same team. So there are multiple touch points where we investigate acquisition, provenance, and condition. Just to add to that, every single bottle of wine that is for sale on the marketplace has been inspected by a professional that understands sort of what to look for. And that's a really important part of the process that we put in place. And subsequently, we really have hardly any examples over the years that I've been an investor where we have problems where wine's sent back. It's really quite remarkable, actually. I am curious, though, I've been on the website a number of times and I see sometimes there's a bottle and it's something like Cru Grand Cuvée and it's like, this is a bottle that you guys are selling direct from the producer or importer, but also a bottle from a collector and they're at different prices. Is that confusing to consumers or how do you differentiate? Because sometimes the prices are considerably different. Yeah, we do source wines from multiple sources for the wines that are listed on our marketplace. So wines listed as being on our collector marketplace are derived from the individual sellers, as discussed before. Then we also have a large number of wines that we source through trade channels. And those trade channels could be a global network of merchants that we work with. It could be directly from a producer as part of a direct allocation, or it could be from a U.S. importer or a local distributor. We try to really clearly differentiate those sources of supply, which we feel is a step beyond what most retailers do. There are many e-commerce retailers that source wine from individual collectors, but don't explicitly differentiate that on offer. So for us, it may be confusing. You could be right because it is a unique feature of Vinfolio Marketplace, but we feel is an important thing to be fully transparent to the consumer. I think as a collector myself, it's interesting because I sometimes will buy stuff or have to buy stuff in order to get the things I actually want. Or sometimes my tastes change over time and I want to liquidate or only want a fraction of what I've actually purchased. So that marketplace seems like a really interesting differentiator from you and other retailer auction places. And I'm curious on what are the pros and cons of comparing that to a traditional retail or auction? Is there other advantages for your Vinfolio members? Yeah, I would first say that I think the experience that you just outlined as a collector is something that many of our clients experience as well. They're passionate and many of them end up just acquiring too much wine or their interests change and perhaps they're no longer interested in a particular category, but are then focused passionately on another category. And so 
what we tend to see is a lot of folks that sell wines through our marketplace are really just, they either have way too much wine <laughs> or they have too much of specific categories and are looking to rebalance. The advantages of our marketplace over traditional live auction from our point of view is it's kind of twofold. From the buyer's perspective, it puts a huge breadth of wine at their fingertips more continuously than a live auction event. There's greater clarity around the asking price because again, we're using this fixed price model. So I think it can be a more satisfying, clear experience from the standpoint of someone looking to acquire wines. From the seller perspective, what we tend to find is that often because we are really looking at the market price and because these wines are listed over a longer period of time, that the prices realized can often be higher through the Vinfolio marketplace than they would be at live auction. Now, there are certainly exceptions to that rule where I would say there are instances where the market price of a given wine is less clear. And that tends to be a fairly narrow band of wines, rarities high in Burgundy, right? Where there's not enough data out there to understand what the true market price is or what someone is willing to pay. So in those cases, we look at auction data and we look at retail data. But with the bulk of wines that we sell and that most auction houses sell in terms of breadth of assortment, we have a pretty good idea of what the correct price is. And we tend to achieve higher selling prices and therefore higher net payouts to the sellers. In terms of the mix between traditional three-tier system sales and the marketplace sales, how would you break it down in the mix for Vinfolio? Is it more heavily weighted to one than the other? Yes. Our producer marketplace generates more revenue. So the collector marketplace is responsible for around roughly one-third, give or take, of our total wine sales. And the balance is coming from the producer marketplace. When you think of the mix of sources of supply within our producer marketplace, I don't have the numbers at my fingertips, but I'm going to guess maybe 15 to 20% are coming from local distributors and importers. And the balance would come from producers directly or from a global network of merchants. When I say merchants, I also include negotiants. A significant amount of what we sell is Cru Class A Bordeaux. And we purchase a lot of that wine directly from negotiants. Storage is one of the key components that you guys mentioned earlier. And part of it being the whole doing everything for everybody or everything for the collector, I should say, not for everybody. What was the strategic rationale behind that? And what are some of the benefits for customers of storing wine with Vinfolio? I think Steve Bachman's idea when he started the company was you needed a ready source of supply for the marketplace. Him being a collector and his friends being collectors, he knew that they had far too much of certain wines. And there had to be a more efficient way to put those wines up for sale than dealing with the traditional auction houses. So I think he saw storage as a vital component as it relates to sourcing wines for the marketplace. Just to give you some color, when I first looked at Vinfolio as a company to invest in, one of the things I was most impressed with was when we walked into the warehouse in American Canyon and I saw the amount of wine and the quality of wine that was being stored. And it kind of brought me back to my days at ASC in China, where I thought when I went into my warehouse, I was both excited and afraid because what I saw was a lot of great wines that I owned 100%. And so the carrying cost and the implications as it relates to cash flow were pretty significant. When I walked into the Vinfolio warehouse, I was excited, but not as afraid because most of the wines that were stored in that warehouse were not Vinfolios, they were collector's wines. So 
when you talk about opportunity for growth, that really struck me as an opportunity for growth because I saw using data properly through a high quality seller management tool, a way to engage those storage clients so they could better understand what they had too much of, what they don't have enough of, and give them an easy way to interact and sell what they had too much of. I guess storage as a component of both making VinSeller a viable part of our business, a valuable part of our business, and as a source of supply. And then from a consumer perspective, hey, there's nothing better than being able to buy some wine, store it somewhere, and then being able to go in and say, hey, I want that case delivered to my house there, but I want to keep these other cases with you. So the convenience for our clients is also, I think, a very important factor as to why it's important to us. Is it priced similarly to other storage providers, like a dollar per case per month kind of thing? Or how does it work differently given the vertical nature of your business? It is different. It's a premium service. So the rough costs are around $5 per case per month. But the fundamental difference, one of the fundamental differences is the fact that it is that the inventory is cataloged and received and serialized at the bottle level. So the collector ultimately through VinSeller has direct line of sight into their entire collection at the bottle level in VinFolio. And anytime they want to take delivery or sell something, they can do that at the bottle level. So it's really a high touch white glove service that is pretty unique. But again, for folks that are collecting and storing these very rare high value bottles, it can make a lot of sense. And I think Peter also say that the reference point to the price per case, I think that's often associated with a self-service storage model. And, you know, a lot of people do like that. They like to be able to get in there, get their hands dirty, move their cases around, have their own locker. That's really not the model we have. I like to stare at my bottles. (laughs) (laughs) You can stare at your VinSeller account in our case. Exactly. I am curious, obviously, when you're vertically integrated, you have different entry points. Like usually someone finds you from one of the entry points, whether it's purchasing or the marketplace or storage or just data tracking. They're looking for an app to track their stuff. What do you find is the primary driver that gets someone to sign up for VinFolio? Is it from the retail side, the access to back vintages in the marketplace, or is it the storage? What's the primary gateway drug? At the moment, it is retail. It's e-commerce. That's where we engage the broadest set of customers and where they often become introduced to Vinfolio. We have some ideas on how that will shift in the future. And one of our key initiatives is we're actually rebuilding VinSeller from the ground up. And we expect that to be a much more significant introduction, or more significant sort of lead generation or jumping off point to engage collectors in the future. You're going to redo VinSeller. Is VinSeller, like Seller Tracker, a separate app? And do you also allow people to integrate their storage or their purchases with Seller Tracker as well? Or is it just VinSeller? It is an independent product. It is tightly integrated with our other systems. So we use an ERP and WMS system for the business, but the transactions flow across the two systems seamlessly. But in addition, obviously, VinSeller is a product that someone that is not engaged with VinFolio can acquire and can use to manage their own inventory, much like a seller tracker would. And folks that are seller tracker users that wish to convert to VinSeller can easily do that and vice versa, because both have tools that allow for easy importation, exportation, importation of that type of data and matching. 
So everything seems to be in service of the collector, which I know collectors love to be pampered. But wine investment is also an area where you guys have recently expanded into an area of focus. I am curious, as a leader in a fine wine space, what prompted you to dive into creating and launching a wine investment service? One of the main things is we started just getting more interest and more inquiries, unsolicited inquiries from folks that were looking at wine as an asset class for investment. And that combined with our assessment of the landscape and our position as a fine wine retailer, we really just saw ourselves as pretty uniquely positioned to offer something that wasn't really on the market at that point in time. Because as you say, I think our experience as a merchant is really informing the way that we're approaching fine wine as an investment, which is really understanding where the demand is. And the demand element is a key component to investment, of course, in particular as it relates to liquidation and having just sort of best capabilities at sourcing wines with best provenance at lowest possible cost. So I think those are the kind of the two things that really gave us a lot of confidence that we should start building out this program. I think one of the challenges that people have faced, investors have faced for wine in the past is that oftentimes the platforms that you're investing in are managed by folks that don't really know the buying side of the business that well. Subsequently, in order to get a couple cases of something that truly has a history of appreciation and value, you need to buy a whole bunch more of something that doesn't. And so I always like to equate these types of models to the global financial crisis and the mortgage-backed securities. And if you go back to that great book, The Big Short, how they describe the pyramid of mortgage-backed securities, where on the top of the pyramid, you had the AAA-rated bonds. Most of that pyramid was filled up with triple C. And Moody's gave them a AAA rating, regardless of the fact that there was a lot of suspect quality mortgages in that pyramid. And I think, unfortunately, for wine investors in the past, that's sort of been how investment portfolios have been built, because the folks in charge of building the portfolios just really aren't experts at doing that. You know, they're more experts of marketing the product and the financial side of it. And that is very important. But where we thought we could add a difference is we really every day know what to buy and where to buy it. And we're solely focused on that collectible class of wines. So given that, we thought we could add some real value here. Also, you mentioned that your model in Europe or in the UK is actually a little bit more common and Barry Brothers and Rudd or Far Vintners. You know, when I lived abroad, those are places I had accounts with and had bought on Premier and have something similar where I'm able to invest, but also sell my wine to other people, which just seems like a very similar model. Obviously, you guys have a lot fancier front end than some of those sites do. So it totally makes sense. Are you seeing that the customer overlap between wine investment and your current Vinfoli customers is really aligned or is it targeting a new set of customers? It seems to be a new set of customers. I would say that there is a little bit of overlap, but the folks that we're engaging with now tend to be wine passionate and interested, but just have a broader view. Whereas I would say the traditional Vinfolio client is one that is a passionate collector and a consumer of fine wines, but not someone that has traditionally looked at the idea of price appreciation is something of core focus. We're definitely seeing a customer that's slightly different that's interested in this offering. So what does the wine investment process look like at Vinfolio? The first thing that is important to note is we have a minimum investment and the minimum investment is $25,000. We feel like a minimum is a requirement in order to really build a 
diverse portfolio from the beginning. And obviously, the idea is to ultimately build and evolve that portfolio over time. But the caliber of wines that we're talking about (laughs) are sort of necessarily expensive or by nature expensive. And therefore, a significant minimum investment is required to ensure that we can purchase wines in original cases, OWCs, which is always our recommendation for investment grade purchases and get enough breadth to build up a nice base portfolio. From there, it's really understanding a bit about what the client's interests are. Our focus is pretty straightforward. It's really around acquiring an assortment of blue chip investment grade wines. The foundation of most of the portfolios we build is Bordeaux. Then we will look at other key categories. But it's always important to understand what the investors' areas of interest are. In some instances, they might wish to speculate a little bit with emerging regions. And we will always weigh in on that, of course, and have dialogue. We want the investor to feel like they are part of the process. And ultimately, some investors may choose to consume some of these wines at the end of the day. So we want to make sure that their wines that they are interested in and passionate about as well as agreeing that they are good investment quality wines, investment grade wines. The next step is doing stock picking. So really looking at the market, looking at buying opportunities and trying to build a portfolio that is allocated across current releases that are really starting to gain traction in the market and also mature vintages that are increasing in scarcity and ultimately finding a balanced portfolio based on great buying opportunities on any given day. When the investor gives us the green light, we procure the wines, we place them into storage. For our investment grade wines, primarily we're storing in the UK under bond because that gives us greatest flexibility for reselling. Because this project is fairly new, we've not done any liquidation events, but the idea would be that when the customer wishes to liquidate, then we would look at the opportunities and understand their goals in terms of timing and assess whether it makes sense to liquidate in Europe or to liquidate the wines in the U.S. So what are the key benefits for people who want to invest with Vinfolio? I think I read somewhere that you can acquire wines at a discount 10 to 15% below retail. How do you do that? And what are other benefits that people get from investing with Vinfolio? So for us, there are two areas of appeal or two events that are of interest to Vinfolio. One is obviously the buying side, the acquisition of these wines. But the other element of the arrangement that we make with investors is that we will ultimately be the ones to liquidate those wines for them in the future. So the benefit is that they can acquire these wines at a cost below market. We are transparent in the fees that we add to both the buying and the selling side. When they're acquiring the wines, they can acquire the wines or when they're investing in wines, the acquisition cost is basically our landed cost plus a 6% commission. Ordinarily, that can be anywhere from 10 to 20% below US market low pricing. And then when they wish to sell the wines, we use the same model as we described before, our fixed price auction model, where we determine the correct retail price. And then we take a 12% commission on that retail price once we sell the wines. Do you then need to add cost or something? Because if you're storing most of the wine in the UK, you got to get it here if most of the customers are buying it in the US, right? That's right. So we build in a shipping cost as part of the acquisition cost, that calculation that we do at the beginning. So that's already built in the assumption that those wines are going to be liquidated in the US. And then the only other thing that the investor is responsible for are storage fees while we're holding the wines for them. And 
those are more or less consistent with our storage rates. And so as an investor, you're a big buyer of wines. Do the investors get first cut at some of the good allocations of small production burgundy or other things? Or how does that work? They do get informed, as our private clients do, of access to special offers and special wines. So a lot of the wines that we sell every day are rarities that never make it to our website or on our email offers because they're just so limited that we really need to hand sell those. So investors are, in essence, private clients that get the same level of personal attention that our top collectors would get. And as a result, they do get access to wines before our broader membership base. How do you help an investor select which wines to invest in? So we have a list of (laughs) an informal list of the producers that we know are in high demand. And we have experience working with and understand basically the evolution of price for these producers. So we tend to have, again, it's a fairly narrow list. And this tends to be the list of wines and producers that we focus on in our everyday business. So we know it very well. It's in our DNA. We also know the vintages that are in best demand as well. So for us, we've got sort of a pool of wines that we're always thinking about looking for. As it relates to the specific recommendations, it really does depend on the day. Wine is so different than a stock, for example, where a stock has a known price. Price of an individual case of wine really can vary based on the market and based on the offers available on any given day. So it's really, there's an element of strategy and experience. And then there's also an element of being opportunistic based on what's out there on any given day. And is it a lot of it profile driven, sort of like a mutual fund is? It's like, I'm interested in blue chips. I want it really stable. I want to make money out of this and also be intellectually curious about what I'm investing in. Or is it, I want to explore, I want to know the, who the next Rouleau is in white burgundy and catch the early wave. And like I'm a little bit more acceptable with risk in terms of some of those may not pin out, some of those may hit. How do you dial that in per person? We are very conservative in general. We tend to focus on wines that are proven to appreciate in value, that they have a track record, that we know we can sell, we know we've got broad demand around. These other wines that you're describing, there is a time and a place for them. And if an investor is particularly interested in adding some of those to their portfolio, we're happy to make recommendations. But as it relates to the core of an investment portfolio, we tend to be very conservative and very pragmatic in our recommendations. Yeah, I mean, I think if an investor truly is looking to maximize returns, as Adam said, there's a limited number of wines out there that have a proven track record to achieve that goal. There's hundreds of just fantastic wines that we all know or know some, don't know others, that are great for exploration and drinking, but they're really not necessarily the wines that are going to appreciate Maybe there is that producer that will just all of a sudden become a superstar. For example, let's look at Telmo Rodriguez in Spain, just launching his new wine on the Place de Bordeaux. This could be a very interesting wine. But if we're building a portfolio specific for returns, we've got to be more conservative because we just don't know. And it's just too risky for our clients to take a different strategy. Makes sense. I know when we talked to a couple other companies in this space, they really focused in on building an algorithm to like understand like where the market's moving and it may have made significant tech investments to figure out what is a good purchase because we're dealing with 09 and 10 Bordeaux. Like if you backtest your things, you could show that those were maybe not the best investment at that time. Obviously, thank God for the Chinese market at that time. I'm curious on like what kind of technology investment is happening at Vinfolio to like help identify through data that you're making the right investment choices. 
we have our own pricing algorithm that we've had for a number of years, and it's called Vindex. And it's an algorithm that takes in historical auction data. We have maintained over 10 years worth of historical auction data from auctions around the world. It takes wine searcher pricing, and we do somewhere in the range of 5,000 wine searcher calls per day and takes our historical sales pricing as well. And it takes those three buckets of data. Depending on the number of inputs in each bucket, the calculation is weighted slightly differently. But that gives us a market price on any given day. And obviously, we've got the history of index pricing over time. So that is one tool that we use. We also use a number of other tools that are available to merchants. So we are a member of LiveX, of course. And LiveX is a UK-based marketplace for fine wine. They have a tremendous amount of data. We utilize that as well. And we also use our retail experience, which you know I think is invaluable as a company that buys and sells a lot of fine wine every day. That is, I think, a real point of difference for us. And at least in my experience, an algorithm isn't quite as good as a person with that deep level of experience combined with the tools that technology can provide. So you mentioned there was the 6% commission on buying the wine and then the standard storage fees. Are there other fees associated with the wine investment process? There are not. The only other fee is on the sell side when we go to liquidate. And that fee of 12% is more favorable than our standard marketplace commissions. So in terms of wine investment, what is the current size of wine assets under management for Vinfolio? This is a fairly new endeavor for us. So it's probably in the neighborhood of three quarters of a million dollars so far, but we've really been at this for just a handful of months. When you think about the amount of wine that we have under our care in Napa, that's somewhere in the neighborhood of $250 million by our best estimates. And in terms of specifically for Vinfolio wine investment, how should consumers understand key differences from you and other players like VinoVest, Cult Wines, or Vint? For us, I think the biggest differentiator is the transparency around the process and really ensuring that the investor has full line of sight into our selections, the rationale behind that. Another is the fact that the investor has the ability to acquire or that our recommendation is that the investor acquire multiple cases. So in the context of VinoVest, you're investing $1,000. Well, that might get you six bottles of one case of wine, which isn't necessarily a diverse portfolio, which we think is necessary to really optimize performance. So I think those are kind of two major points of difference, transparency and obviously the strategy. And lastly, the fact that our experience is really rooted as a merchant in fine wine. Yeah, I mean, I think that in the case of investors through Vinfolio, the portfolio is what they own. They own that portfolio of wines. They don't own a slice of that portfolio. And I think when it comes time for liquidation and realization of a profit on the investment, that's going to play a very important role in how our performance is judged versus others. So you mentioned overhauling VinCellar. Wine investments is a new big thing for Vinfolio. Are there other big pushes for Vinfolio that's coming up? Another big initiative, really two of our big initiatives are on the technology front. So one is VinCellar as discussed, and we see that as such a powerful tool for engaging with fine wine collectors in many different ways and really providing personalized experience that's relevant to their interests. So 
one of the key focal points of our VIN seller relaunch is orienting data and an experience around investment for folks that are inclined in wine as an investment. Additionally, we're going to be relaunching our e-commerce platform very soon. So we're transitioning to a new platform, which is also going to give us the ability to really refine and customize and personalize the user experience. A lot of our engagement with clients today is one-on-one, which we know isn't going to change, but we want to be in a better position to leverage technology and data to customize and personalize an experience for folks that are on our website or on Vinceller to make it that much richer and more relevant. Adding to what Adam said, over the past year, focusing on those two tech initiatives have been the more important things that we've been doing. I think in additionally, we've been hiring more quality people to be able to service our clients. So people as an asset, I think that asset's going to increase. And if you look at our ability to carry inventory, not only to sell wine on pre-arrival, but to have inventory in stock ready to ship, that's an important investment that we've been making as well. And beyond that, really, it's about how do we grow the business into the world's leading fine and rare wine marketplace? That's the goal for Vinfolio. And to me, what that ultimately becomes is a combination of what we see in the UK and what we see in the United States. I think there's some fantastic business models in the UK. We've touched on a few of those companies already. But I also think there's some incredible things happening in the auction space in the United States that's growing very quickly. So being able to combine those models and have a best-in-class seller management tool that not only gives us data to be able to engage our clients more effectively, but really gives the user a fantastic tool to engage their passion for fine wine better is the direction we're going in. You know, I think there's a lot to do. I think probably our biggest challenge is making sure we're focused enough given all of the different opportunities in the fine wine space out there. Well, I want to thank you guys for joining us. With every episode, we ask our guests a wrap-up question. I'm curious, what are each of you personally most excited about in the wine industry in the coming year? Go ahead, Adam. <laughs> Put you on the spot. <laughs> yeah. I think that what has been interesting in particular in the last couple of years is how the industry, it's really accelerated the focus on technology in an industry that really hasn't been tech-focused. So I think that that increased focus should lead to greater innovation, more energy, a bit more competition, probably, which we're certainly not afraid of, and just a more dynamic industry that will hopefully be better positioned to engage consumers. Yeah, I think for me, largely the same. I mean, I think ultimately the wine industry is very fragmented. And I think most attempts to apply technology to making a better model for the industry haven't worked that well. But I think the pandemic has accelerated consumers' acceptance of technology interaction with wine. If you look at how many people are buying wine online these days versus what would have been happening in 2019, you know, dramatic, dramatic shift. Stepping back, I think tech is going to play a more important role in a number of critical areas in wine distribution, whether that's the producer connecting with the consumer, whether that's how the consumer interacts with understanding the product. So many exciting things, I think, are finally going to start happening in the space. That's the reason I invested in Vinfolio. Look back six years after I invested, and I think we're finally at the point where this is starting to make sense relative to the macro opportunities and trends happening in the market. 
Awesome. Those are two really insightful things to look forward to, especially from the Vinfolio side. Gentlemen, I want to thank you both for joining us. It was really great to learn about what's happening in Vinfolio and how it differs from other investment firms as well as retail companies. Really appreciate your time. Thanks, guys. Thank you, guys. Thanks for joining us. If you loved this episode of X Chateau, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.